Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Indivina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thank you so much for joining me here today. Today, my guest is Tim O'Sullivan, who is an amazing engineer, mixer, producer, and he's based out of Los Angeles. He is the studio manager at Barefoot Recording, which is a studio owned by Eric Valentine, who is another great producer who I'd love to get on the podcast. Hopefully, we can get him on here at some point soon. But Tim is an amazing engineer who has quite the background. He's done a lot of different work in the audio industry, everything from building consoles and wiring cables for undertone audio, to engineering, to producing, working with artists like Leonard Cohen, Raylan Baxter, Swimmers, Fiddler, Billy Corgan, and a whole bunch more. This is a great conversation. I think he gives us some really cool stories about kind of breaking into the industry and how to build your name, how to grow, and ultimately how to grow into your own sound as well. And we get into some really cool techniques that he likes to use. And I think you're going to find this really, really insightful. So here it is, my interview with Tim O'Sullivan. Tim O'Sullivan, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. For people who might not know your background, can you give us a little bit of your story on how you got into audio production and engineering and all this stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, basically, I I played in a bunch of bands growing up in Arizona. Um, Someone needed to record the demos for the MySpace page. And, uh, you know, that at that point, even when you're trying to play at bar gigs, like all all the venue owners cared about was how many MySpace friends you had. And so that became super important. We had to do we had to do that. And I found out that I was having a lot more fun um, recording and doing that and playing with the gear than um, than I was playing shows. And I became more focused on that and started doing it for other bands and got a internship at a recording studio during college. There was a a, a uh, recording studio on the campus for the prof- the professors and grad students and stuff in the music school to use. And I got an internship working there, kind of just kept going from there. Got, after school, got a job at Capitol Studios as a in, in Hollywood as a as a runner and uh, met a bunch of people there. And it just kind of, you know, just all kept going. That's amazing. So when you were first starting and, you know, you were trying to record the songs so you can get them up on MySpace and all that stuff. How did you start with that? Like, did you just jump all in or like, how did you get into that? Yeah, I mean. Someone had GarageBand and we just started messing around with it. I had Fruity Loops when I, you know, I messed around with Fruity Loops in high school. So I kind of had some idea of like how to hook up a sound card or an interface and like do that. But, you know, we just, yeah, we just messed around with GarageBand and it was just kind of trial by error. And then when I got that internship, that recording studio, then I started to learn a little bit more of like how to actually do this and started reading, started reading tape up a lot, things like that, going on gear slots and seeing a lot of, you know, half the time that stuff, the, I mean, tape op is a great resource. The, the internet can, you get all sorts of conflicting, uh, you know, especially back then, I think like now there's a lot more podcasts and YouTube things that are more organized and like have experts involved, but even getting that bad information and then trying it out and seeing that it was wrong was, was all super valuable. For sure. That, yeah, definitely with YouTube these days, it's like the information's so scattered all over the place that like it's, 
you, you might find the good information every now and then, but to actually compile that all into a solid workflow that is repeatable is often a big challenge. So I imagine that once you started interning, you know, you got the chance to watch a lot of people in in action and probably learned a ton of stuff from that, right? You know, it was a, a, a studio at a, re- at, a, at a music school. And so it was lots of classical recording and jazz and stuff like that. And lots of learning, like lots of learning just how to stay out of the way and not over-process things, which is not, <laughs> not what I do now. But, uh, <laughs> and just kind of learning how to... Uh, just learning how to read the room and kind of learning when to interject and things like that just by just by being there. Absolutely. It's funny because you said you said that uh, you learned to not overprocess things, which is unlike you do now. <laughs> how what uh, what do you mean by that? And how has that changed? Or why has that changed? I, I personally feel like I'm a pretty aggressive mixer. And I do I mean, I do a lot of processing on the way in, do a lot of committing to things for a lot of committing to things and trying to get things to sound as much like a record as a recording and as possible. You know, in college, I learned a lot of like, it was jazz records. And it was like, you know, you're not doing that sort of thing. You're not, it's not a, it's not a rock record where you're trying to inspire someone by having them hear something cool. You're just trying to capture what's happening in the room. And, uh, and, and I mean, that's mainly the difference is I've, I've, I've learned to I've learned that a big part of my job especially when I'm working as a producer is to make sure that what everybody's hearing in their headphones is inspiring while they're recording it and it sounds as much like a record as possible and so being you know when when in the past I might have been more cautious and might have not might have erred on the side of you know not compressing things as much or not doing things now at this point I know what I want the end product to sound like and and I'm trying to get as close to that as possible at at every stage. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It, it's funny too because I feel like kind of a recurring theme on the podcast is that a lot of people that I've interviewed have talked about either going to school or you know working with someone else, and they've kind of taught them a way to record safely, you know, and not really committing to things or not using specific mics on certain things because it's almost like they're afraid of you know, the, the intern or whoever breaking the gear by doing it a certain way. But, you know, at the end of the day, though, you're right, though. It's like if, if you're helping to get that final sound and get that polished, like make it sound like a record, then why not use it on the way in? Right. Like that's a huge leap. To, that's I mean, you, you have to have that experience of like learning how to stay out of the way and learning how to not overdo things. And then you, you have to get and then finish enough products and projects and 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 know what that end result is that you want and develop your sound and develop your taste and also be at a point where you know why someone's booking you and you know what they want from you. Um, you know, if I, if I'm just some random guy on a project and, uh, and there isn't that relationship and there isn't that understanding of what it is that I'm bringing to the table, then I'm not going to impart my thing all over it. I'm going to just, I am going to lean, I am going to, I am going to let the, what's happening in the room lead more. And I am going to, um, I am going to, uh, to stay out of the way a lot more. But when I know, when I have a relationship with the artist and a relationship with the music, and we've talked about what it is that we want together and what we're trying to do, then, and, and knowing that I have a skill set and I have, and there's a reason that I'm in that room with this person at that time, and we have a goal in mind, then I'm able to be more aggressive and be and 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 build on stuff. And it and it and it is a lot of like um 
making sure that they're inspired and making sure that we are reaching for this goal that we've, that we've set out for. And, um, and you know, when you have, when you have that, then, but you, but you can't just start there. You can't just start there. And that's why a lot of, a lot of times I think interns and, and people in recording schools are told to, uh, to not be aggressive and to be, and to be very hands off and to stay out of the way and not break things because that's what you need to do at that point until you have that relationship with the artist until you have that skill set. But if you just come in swinging for the fences before you know what you're doing or before you have that okay to do that, um, it's completely inappropriate and it's not going to get the right results. For sure. It, it reminds me of like one of my old mentors. He used to always say that in order to break the rules, you need to know the rules first. So it's, you sure. know, it's, it's very much that kind of same mentality, right? Like you have to understand how to use the gear and why you do it a certain way before you start to venture off into that experimental world. Yeah. And you have to have your taste and you have to know, you have to know what's appropriate before you, yeah. Before you start doing weird stuff. For sure. It, it's interesting too, because I feel like, I mean, we, we'll get into this, but you are a studio manager at Barefoot Recording. So I'm imagining that you see a lot of interns coming through the studio who are probably trying to, they want to, you know, they hear the final results. And so they're probably thinking like, oh, I need to do this and that. Like, how do you approach your interns then when they have that same sort of way of thinking? Sure. I mean, Barefoot's a pretty, it's a pretty legendary space. And, it, you know, it was Eric Valentine's private studio for 18 years. And he is definitely a guy who, doesn't play by any rules and just does whatever he wants to do and does whatever, whatever the song needs. And so we'll get, you know, one common thing I get asked about is the drums for the Queens of the Stone Age record. Um, that uh, songs for the deaf that Eric did. And some of the songs on that Dave Grohl recorded the drums in two separate passes and basically, you know, and that's a kind of legendary thing. And it's been in all these interviews and people ask about it. And, uh, you know, and, and how that was done is basically we, we, Eric set up a kit that had dummy pads for like electronic drum pads for the cymbals so that the band was still hearing something, but nothing was really getting recorded other than just, you know, the quiet sound of the stick hitting the rubber. And then they did another pass where he replaced the kick and the and the toms and the snare with uh, with that with the electronic kit. And then replaced the, uh, and then put real symbols up, and uh, and it's a really cool thing. And so basically, you know, the drums end up. He ended up being able to like be really aggressive with the compression and the treatment of the drums because he's not going to destroy the symbols. A lot of uh, young engineers will read about that on gear slots or read about that on in an interview and be like, "Oh, that's awesome! Let's try that. I want to do that." But the problem is that. One of the really one of the reasons that that worked is because Dave Grohl is an incredible drummer and can keep and can keep in his head. Okay, I did this on the and can play and can double his parts. There aren't a lot of drummers that could double themselves like that and do that as a separate thing. And there aren't a lot of bands that can keep in their head the final product and not be uninspired by this performance of. Um, cause he was still doing those basic tracks with the band and the band still needed to be inspired and lay down these and, 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 and play cool guitar parts and like feel and make it feel like a big cohesive thing. 
people will read that and go, oh man, that's awesome. Let's try that. And I get asked about doing that all the time with bands and I get, and, but what they forget <laughs> is Dave Grohl is an incredible drummer. And, and what's inspiring about that story is not that this, this crazy technique that someone came up with, it's that it worked. Like what's inspiring about that story is that this mu- these musicians were so great that they pulled off this crazy thing. And it can be really easy to read about that crazy thing and be like, oh, let's do that. And uh, I, I, my point is, I don't want to like discourage people from trying crazy creative things because that can be super valuable in the studio. Uh, my point is like you need to know what what you can pull off and know like what you have the time and the resources to do because they also had a major label budget and months and months in the studio that was owned by the producer doing the record like they had as much time as they needed to experiment and try these things and to do that your half day drum session <laughs> at a really expensive studio you've blown your whole budget on and you're trying to do a, an entire EP's worth of basic tracks in is probably not the time to try recording the drums separately. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's like I mean, I've definitely done that same technique myself and the results can be amazing, but it really requires having the right musician who knows like note for note what they're going to play so that you can, yeah, you can have a separate cymbal track and a separate shell track and put them together. Otherwise it's just a mess. And, and so many people, I find like a lot of bands just don't take the time to really hone in on their parts and like make every note intentional. And then that's what makes, you know, this kind of recording technique not work. It just, falls apart right yeah i mean you you read about stevie wonder or prince and people like that who would have the entire arrangement in their head and could lay down one individual horn part by themselves and do that and because they're hearing because every note is intentional everything is planned out and they're hearing all those things if you do that and, and you can do that and you have the skill to do that as a musician then go ahead try recording everything separately and build build that yeah it's almost like there's production chops and like production ways to experiment from a production standpoint. And then there's like the musicianship standpoint, like, and both of those have to be completely dialed in in order to work together. You can't do one without the other. And as a producer and as a musician, you need to be reading each other's skills and knowing what it is that you can pull off as a team. You can't just throw these crazy on both, on both sides of it. You can't just throw these crazy things out unless you're doing them together. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense too. And and you talked about kind of, you know, making your process a little bit more, you're, you're doing a lot more these days with, with your productions and committing to the sounds on the way in. And that's one of the things that I actually really like about your productions is that you, you tend to use saturation a lot and mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, and I, I, it's like all over your recordings and I love it. Cause like you pull it off really, really well. And, um, you know, I was curious if you have a strategy behind the saturation and why you add that, or, you know, do you, do you record things a little cleaner and then add it more in post, but it kind of sounds like you're, you're committing on the way in, especially on recent projects, uh, you know, in the last two years of being, of being at barefoot, a ton of that saturation is coming from the UTA pre's and and the and the UTA console. And part of why I feel so comfortable doing that is because, you know, I was a part of UTA from the beginning and helped build those consoles and helped build those pre's. And so I know that piece of gear better than anything else. And I know exactly how it's going to distort because I was around when Eric and and Larry Jasper, the designer, were uh were 
working together to try it that were they were messing with the head the headroom and they were messing with the saturations with with how the 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 equipment saturated and like trying to make sure that it had headroom but did that in cool ways and like and experimenting with that and tweaking that and um so i have a really clear image in my head of what that's going to sound like when i do that um and 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 i'm not just experimenting i'm, I'm picking out pieces from a palette i know what that's going to sound like and i'm making a choice um but i mean so yeah that's it's definitely it's definitely intentional and it's definitely um it's definitely intentional and it's definitely uh it's also a thing that i know is one of my strengths and i know it's a thing that's like all over my work and that people like that i do and it's also a thing that i talk make sure to talk with my clients ahead of time like you know this is the thing i do you like this thing right because <laughs> if you do i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to lean into it if it's not a thing that's appropriate for what we're doing then i'm not going to do that but but when the client is is excited about that and knows that that's one of my strengths then we can do that together and it's really cool um but there there is a record that i'm working on right now that we did it was the first thing that I did, uh, not primarily at Barefoot in a long time. And uh, before I was at Barefoot, I had a studio in Brooklyn. So it was one of the few things that I've done in a long time that wasn't at my studio or a studio. I mean, before that, I was at, I I've always been, I've only done a handful of projects where it's like a, the traditional, like, let's book a studio and then an engineer and a producer and go book a room somewhere else. It's always been something I did on my studio or a studio that I was on staff or worked out of and like I'd done a billion things at that place. This was, we went to a rubber band factory in in uh, an abandoned rubber band factory in Kentucky that had been recently converted into a studio. And uh, I brought a, I brought what I could take on a carry-on and rented a couple like essential pieces, like an LA-2A and things like that that I needed um, to just feel somewhat at home and brought some of my mics and things like that and guitar pedals. But like, you know, I had, it was what I could bring on an airplane. Um, and so that was the first time where I had to do something where I like wasn't just pulling directly out of my, out of my toolbox and you know luckily we we're at the studio for two months and i had a time i had time to like make a new toolbox in in this place and uh and experiment and stuff like that but one of the real challenges that after talking to the artists about like what they wanted to do with this record and i had done other projects with them was not doing as much of that saturation thing and not doing and like trying to do more clean uh like more clean for myself, at least more clean, open kind of things. Yeah. And saturation, like it's such a cool tool that a lot of people don't even think to use. Cause they, you know, it kind of goes against the rules if you want to call it that. Right. Like, you know, people are so, are so taught to be, you know, record things clean, you know, never clipping that kind of stuff, but you can get some really great sounds out of the saturation. And, um, you know what I, I admire that about your, your recordings because it adds a lot of character to the overall final product. Um, but one key, one question that I was curious about is when you are using saturation, like you've talked about, you, you feel really good with it. You're like very, it's one of your strengths. Um, saturation is one of those things that can very easily also 
destroy a track too, right? Like if you go too far with it. So when you're doing stuff like drums and you're adding saturation to drums, how, what do you do to maintain the transient information there rather than just completely distorting the whole thing and, and losing that initial point? You know, especially on drums and stuff like that, like I'll, there's, I, I don't do like a lot of parallel compression and stuff like that. But what I do do is I set up like, I'll set up like a kit mic that I'm hitting, that I'm compressing really hard. And I'll have dedicated sources for that. And even, you know, so, and then I'll, I, you know, I compress overheads in rooms and stuff just like everybody else. But like, and there's a little bit of saturation coming out of the close mics and stuff like that. But like on drums, especially like a ton of my drum sound is coming from that overcompressed kit mic. Which half the half the time is a fifty seven or a five four five. It's either it's either a fifty seven, a five four five, or some sort of ribbon mic, um, and you know, and that gives me the flexibility of like my close mics are not that crushed, and my and they're not and they're not the, that saturated, and my overheads are pretty open, but there's a little bit of something going on to make them sound like a record, um, but yeah, having that. That does give me the flexibility to dial it in to taste, and you know, and, and it's and it's a lot of trust and a lot of like checking in with the artists and making sure like we're we're hearing the this together, we're liking this. This is a, we're going to keep going down this road, but and then you know with guitars, uh, a lot of my guitars are super distorted and and things like that, and um, but I'm always recording a DI. I'm always recording a DI. And then reamping live, and I do that for a lot of reasons. But I mean, may, I like to split things out to multiple amps. I like to, um, and I like to be able to change amps really quickly while we're in a session without having to to mess with what the guitarist is doing. Um, and if I'm reamping live like that, like I can throw up another amp, have that going, leave their original amp up. They don't even know, uh, you know, and, and it's just a. I don't even necessarily need to hear change what they're hearing in their headphones. I can set up another amp that's doing a weird thing that they don't even need to hear right now. Um, and, uh, but anyways, but that also gives me the freedom of like, uh, that also gives me a little bit of freedom to, and I know it contradicts all the stuff I said about like committing and trying to make things, but it does give me a little bit of extra freedom to swing for the fences a little bit and really, um, and really kind of exaggerate and kind of get something that's a little bit gnarlier than maybe we might want um, coming out of the speakers because that's going to, and coming out of the headphones because that's going to inspire the artist. Um, and then I have that little bit of freedom to, if they, if, if they're worried that it's too much or that we've gone too far, I'm like, Hey, we've got the DI, let's just try this cool thing. Uh, and 90% of the time we end up sticking with the cool thing. But, but having that little safety net of knowing, like, we can distort this, we can make this really crazy, uh, does, does give you the freedom to go a little bit further. Um, and I even do that with when I'm recording the tape. Um, you know, we, the way the patch base are set up at Barefoot, well, the, the direct outs will feed directly into Pro Tools, the bus outs will go directly, will go into the tape machine. And then there's enough I.O. that I'll have the returns of the tape machine get dumped back into Pro Tools at the same time. The band will usually be monitoring off of, I'll build headphone mixes off of the console or off of those, those straight Pro Tools inputs. And then I'll monitor off of the tape machine 
uh, off out of Pro Tools the 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 returns of the tape machine, um, and so that means that I do have that safety, and I think I've used it maybe like two or three times. Um, but I do have that safety and I can say to the band, like we're hitting tape really hard and we're using it as an effect. If we went too far, I do have that safety of like, we can pull it back. And I, I, I think I've used that once or twice and I've definitely used it once to get aside. You know what? We didn't go far enough (laughs) (laughs) and I need to go a little bit further and I'll reprint through tape and hit it even harder that combination of like committing and like doing a cool thing, but also having that little bit of safety net sometimes lets you commit a little bit harder. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Like you can, because you, you know, or it lets you, it lets you experiment a little bit more because you know, all right, if I need it, I can fix this. Yeah. It's just kind of covering your track so that, you know, you don't have to go calling your artist back after the fact and being like, Ooh, we, yeah, we went a little too far. Like this isn't going to work that kind of thing. And, and it's a, and, and it's a valuable tool as a producer. Cause I can say to the artist, let's try this crazy thing. If it doesn't work. The time's not wasted. We have, we have what we need to do it, but let's try it. Cause it could be really cool. And, and it usually is. And when it's not, it's still got them excited and helped us get to the thing that was really cool and worked. Yeah, it's not such a dry process when you're experimenting, right? It's like getting those creative juices flowing in, in different ways. And, you know, the artist isn't just there to do their part and leave. It's like, no, we're like creating a sound. We're crafting this whole process and, and getting the whole vision to come to life. Yeah. And I mean, that, and that's the difference between being a producer and being an engineer. Absolutely. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense to have that backup because obviously you know, it's, it might save you at some point. And, uh, you know, I think, I think a lot of people listen to recordings and they, they focus just on, you know, like if you're listening to drums specifically, most people are focusing just on like, almost like what they think is a close mic, the kick and snare, that kind of stuff. But to your point of having like a dedicated saturation mic, almost, you know, that's really what's adding a lot of that character. And people aren't really factoring in that that's a room sound or, you know, that's a, another mic somewhere else. Right. So very cool to hear that process. And I, I think that that makes a lot of sense in terms of how to maintain those, those transients and all that kind of stuff in there as well. And uh, you also touched on another point, which I think is just really understanding the gear. And you've talked about, you know, being able to trust the UTA pre's and stuff like that because you've helped build them. So I was curious to to learn a little bit more about that side of it too. Um, you've worked at Undertone Audio for a while now. Do you still do work with them, or is it all just kind of kind of the same building, same same owner? I don't do much uh, work with Undertone anymore, and and I haven't for some time. But it, you know, they're all they're all family, and it's this you know it's the same owner and things like that. And so we have we have this connection. But, you know, I was, but that, that was what brought me into Barefoot is I, I, when I was a runner at at Capitol, I was moonlighting at Barefoot, helping put knobs on the UTA console and then, um, and then eventually uh, left Capitol to work uh, full-time at UTA for a little while. Yeah. So how did that all come about when you got the gig working at UTA? Um, Like, were you always into making gear or was that just something? I was always curious about it. I always tinkered with stuff. I did, had no idea what I was doing. I studied music in college and did, I played synths and like tweak, you know, tried to mod my guitar pedals and make, I had no idea what I was doing. I was, but I, you know, I, I always was taking my stuff apart and experimenting as a kid. And, um, 
and and definitely had an interest in it. But uh, when I was when I was at Capitol, John Bryan was camped out in Studio B for about two and a half years, something like that. And uh, through him, I got to know a guy named Michael Westbrook who was doing a bunch of wiring for. Uh, he was also working at Barefoot, doing helping out with the consoles and stuff like that. And he was doing a bunch of wiring for John Bryan, and he, John wanted like 300 XLR cables or something. And so Michael asked me if I knew how to solder and if I would help with that. And I said, I have no idea. I said, like, you know, I've repaired some things. I can't, I've installed car stereos. Like, I know, I, I, yeah, I, I can use a soldering iron, but I'm not like some great wiring guy. And uh, he said, perfect. Like, I, uh, someone who, that's perfect. I just want someone that I can, that, can help me and I can show how to do it my way and do it right and get these. And, and so, you know, then I spent like a couple months making these giant, this giant order (laughs) of XLR cables for, and then a bunch of instrument cables and stuff like that. And just, got really good at it from doing that that's like that's one way to do like trial by fire right <laughs> yeah it was just like all right cool you want to learn how to do this make 600 of them <laughs> but so I, I did that like you know after working on weekends michael was working at at barefoot doing these things so i would go to barefoot to help him with with this john bryan wiring and then from there got to know eric and then it was like oh hey tim's here every day we need another set of hands to you know Literally, the first thing they had me do was uh, was put knobs on the console. And in fact, there's a there's a Pensado's place episode, uh, like tour that he did of Barefoot, and it's like it's like one of my first days there. <laughs> and a, a group of us are all in the kitchen working on working on one of the consoles, and uh, and Eric's introducing everybody, and you can see the moment where he forgets my name because he had met me about an hour before <laughs> that. You know, he's like, oh, this is, you know, this is Michael, this is Dre, this is, uh, and then one of the other guys says, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) But I had literally, I I mean, I had literally met the guy like an hour before that had just like been introduced and started, started that day. That's amazing. Cause it's like, you know, you're, you're in this pretty cool situation where you help to create the gear that you now work off of a lot. And so yeah. because of that, you have this like really deep, intimate relationship with the gear that you're using. It's not just something you bought off of the shelf somewhere at a music store, right? Like you, you know, the ins and outs of it. Hey, I'm curious too. Like I, I was recently speaking with uh, Dan Korneff. I'm not sure if, you, if you're familiar with him, but he, um, he builds a lot of his own gear as well. And he was telling me that his thing is that like whenever he needs a piece of equipment, he'd rather build it than like buy a plug-in version of it. And I'm wondering if that, if it's the same sort of idea there at Barefoot with the UTA stuff, because you have access to all that information or all that all of those parts and you know, you're building it. Do you guys find that you're frequently thinking like, oh, we need we need one more of these? Like just build it? Is that kind of how that that relationship works there? That definitely happens. I mean, because we're a commercial studio now, there's definitely incentive to have tools that the people that are coming from the outside know and are familiar with. So there may be, so there's, there's definitely incentive to buy things that people, people recognize. Um, But then also because we have this, this, you know, this history of like, we made our consoles and we did that. um, People come here, people come there for that. Um, And so, you know, there's been certain things like we have some reamp boxes that, that were, we, we just couldn't find a reamp box that did what we wanted. So, 
we made a few of those and we have a guitar cable buffer box and things like that, 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 uh, uh, that have been made. There was a, uh, you know, the very cap cable that UTA makes, uh, came out of, that was during the second slash record that Eric produced. And that was kind of towards the beginning of my time of being around. Um, Eric was getting really tweaky with, or had been for years, got really tweaky with guitar cable length. And like during during the Smash Mouth record, Greg Camp was complaining that he had, excuse me, um, that Eric had a crazy short guitar cable that he made him use where he was basically having to like perch his guitar on top of the Fender basement head just to like, he was using like a, you know, like a, a six inch pet, a guitar, pe- a guitar <laughs> pet, a pedal cable. You know, and and was just like very awkwardly, like just married to the amp, like couldn't go very far away. And uh, but so like Slash had this giant, super long, like 80 foot monster cable that he used with his live rig. And so he like brought his live rig and set that all up and had this. And Eric's like, oh, no, screw this thing. It's the, the like, let's use one of these. And at the time, he was really into these like. Uh, it was using like digital video cable for guitar cables and making these like super low capacity, super, super bright guitar cables. And so he handed him like a 10 foot cable that we had made of that and plugged it in. And his whole rig had been dialed in with this 80 foot long cable that had all this capacitance on it. And so when we plugged in, you know, the supposedly better guitar cable, his tone just fell apart. It was just gnarly bright and just was not working anymore. And so Eric was, that got Eric thinking. And he talked to Larry Jasper, who is the guy that designs a lot of the equipment with Eric and said like, you know, why is this happening? Why? Like, um, and we had been, he had been experimenting with using on purpose, using longer guitar cables. And we were aware of how that would change the tone, but he was like, you know, is that just a function of capacitance? And is that a thing that we can control somehow? And Larry was like, yeah, you know, I could make a little box. This is a series of resistors and, and, you know, and, and some other very simple parts. And we, he made a little box and we switched it around and started making, um, you know, we made this box for slash that was like a a series of switches that we could engage to get different combinations of, of parts to add capacitance to, uh, to his guitar cable. And, uh, you know, eventually that was refined into a product where it's, you know, in a little box that's, that's mounted on the cable itself with a switch. And, uh, but that was the initial genesis of the idea was a production problem in, in a session. That's amazing. There's there's definitely lots of that that happens. Yeah. So for people who maybe haven't experimented with cables and cable lengths and all that kind of stuff, what were some of the observations that you guys were having with that? Like in terms of different lengths or different brands, did you guys find that obviously it made a big difference because you guys went to the degree of making this this switch, but what, what were those differences that you noticed? I mean, we, we had cables that were like labeled like dark, bright, super dark. Um, And it was just, it, it was a function of the capacitance of the cable, but it was, um, which is a measurable phenomenon. There was a point where we would grab different cables for, for that. And uh, I mean, the easiest way to describe the way it sounds is it's like, it's a very, it's a much, it's a more subtle tone knob once, once it's in the final thing. And then it does change 
a little bit kind of the mid-range response of the amp and how the amp loads a little bit. Um, and, you know, and it, so it, it, it does make a difference. It's a smaller thing. And it, it's especially with like a single coil pickup directly into an amp, uh, then it, then it's much more obvious, uh, and much, and much more aggressive effect. So it's like shorter cables end up getting you a bit of a brighter sound and longer cables. It kind of rolls off a little bit more. Pretty much. That's, I mean, you know, the, the, how, what the cables made out of and things like that are going to be, are also going to be a factor of the, or on, on, on the capacitance of the cable, but a super long cable, you're going to lose high end, a super short cable. You're going to gain high end. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that too, because, you know, you think of someone like Slash who has such an iconic sound and it's almost like a lot of engineers would probably be afraid to even attempt to change his his sound, you know, or his tone. And, you know, if it's like, that's how Slash sounds, like, let's leave this really long cable. But I love that Eric is like, no, let's let's change this up and do something different. It's awesome. I mean, at that, <laughs> I mean, at that point, this was the second record he had done with him. And there was definitely a level of comfort of like, let's experiment a little bit together, you know, and, and that's, and we, we know we can get that, but let's, let's try some other things. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. I guess, I guess you don't go swinging right away with someone like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And especially like, well, I mean, it also it's, it's slash, like his audience knows his sound and he know and knows what, what that is. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> You're not gonna be like, hey, let's let's use this little like PV amp as your uh, amp sound on this record. <laughs> and this was also a uh, a record where, um, I mean, what was interesting about that record was that it, it was a it was trying to uh, basically they did that first record together, and um, things were uh, they did that first record together and. You know, it was different vocalists, guest vocalists on every song and stuff like that. And then they went out and toured that record. And then Slash, my understanding of that is that then Slash became really close with the band. And then the idea was like, let's keep this vibe going. They went into a rehearsal studio for a while. And the idea was to kind of transfer everybody's stage setup. In fact, like they, we had floor monitors set up for Slash and stuff like that um, in an ISO booth um, just to keep everything as feeling as live as possible. And so that, that was part of the thing was that like literally, literally just dropping slashes touring rig into the studio, which is not necessarily a thing that would normally happen. I know you, you mentioned that you, you work very closely with Eric Valentine and obviously he's, he's an owner at the studio. You know, he's produced a lot of my favorite records and, and it sounds like he's, you know, you've, you've worked on a lot of different projects with him. I was wondering if you'd share some of the biggest lessons that you've learned as a result of working with him. Yeah. I mean, I, my experience of working with Eric is, you know, I, I worked on the, I was around as a tech during those days and helping with like the, so like during the slash record, it'd be like, Hey, we're going to try this crazy thing. Can you rewire this guitar amp? Can you put a, put a speaker out on this? Can you help make this box? That kind of stuff. Um, it wasn't until later after knowing him for like, or knowing him for, you know, quite a few years before I ever assisted Eric on a record. And, you know, that didn't happen until 2018. And, you know, was, and then I was working on the, I worked on the Grace Potter record with him and, uh, and some of the Gwen Stefani stuff that happened. Like once I came back, uh, to barefoot from him, I just kind of, you know, Capital was very much this, uh, you know, it's a commercial studio and you're, uh, there's rules and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and things are, 
um, are done a certain way and the clients expect that and there are merits to that. And it, it, and it lets the whole thing function. It lets the clients get what they need and get in and out. Um, the way that Eric made records was he'd be blocked in his studio for six months to a year with the, with these clients. And uh, that, that lends itself to a certain amount of experimentation. And also there's a certain freedom of like, uh, of, of uh, what you're going to do in the space. And, um, you know, with barefoot being a commercial space again, we've tried, I've like, we sat down and talked about how we're going to keep those, what the merits of those two approaches and how we were going to bring those together. And I, we've done a really, I think we've done a really good job of that. And, uh, but like, you know, we've been able to do things of like, but, the, but we've always been committed to like, we don't say no, it's what the song needs and what we're going to do. And, uh, there was a recent session where, uh, we're, we're all set up. We're ready to go. And the client's like, Oh, you know what? We want to do some B3 and stuff like that. And I had amps in all the booths and I, uh, we have tie lines that run through to the kitchen, uh, just to, if we need to throw another guitar amp in there or something like that. And the kitchen also has a super high ceiling and it's a great sounding room. So there's tie lines. Um, and so, but we didn't have a tie line for the Leslie. And I, so normally I would have, Maybe if I knew I was going to do that, I would put the guitar amps in the kitchen and then put the Leslie in one of the booths because there are lines there. Um, but we're like 20 minutes before we're going to record this part. And I'm like, what, you know, what am I going to do? And uh, at the time we had a contractor building an ISO booth onto Studio C. And so I went and grabbed him and I said, hey, man, can I borrow your Sawzall? And I borrowed a sawzall and I cut a hole in the wall through to the kitchen <laughs> and pulled the Leslie cable through. And the client's like, and I walked back in to the control room, not thinking anything of it because it's just so much a part of our DNA at, at this place. And I just walk into the control room covered in drywall dust. I was like, hey, let's uh, record that. Let's record that B3 part. And the client's like, what the hell did you do, man? And I was just, we record, we pulled the Leslie cable through the wall because that's what it took to get done. And then we patched, I patched it later. There's, there's a pass through there now. <laughs> but, yeah. You might as well make use of it when, when the hole's there, right? <laughs> yeah. But I cleaned it up later and uh, you know, it was fine, but it was just, there's, there's no rules. And, and so being able to, being able to serve the client and to serve the song to that level in this place is like, that's the, that's the biggest lesson I learned from Eric. I love that. And I guess, you know, you're, you're, playing in his playground this is his studio so he can he can mess around and do whatever he wants and and uh you know get creative like that yeah and we and we wanted to bring that to the clients it was like this is your playground today or this month or however long you're here yeah i think i saw a video where you were doing a tour of the studio and you were talking about like a makeshift wall that you guys had made for a project <laughs> i was like that's amazing <laughs> like make a little booth for your drums every little uh every change that's happened in that room uh other than cosmetic stuff that we've done has been you know there's a giant baffle that goes through the wall through the middle of the room and it was just it, we needed it for that right like nothing sacred as you know we we the we added an iso booth as a slash house because we slash wanted to use floor monitors like not nothing sacred it's all it's all always constantly evolving it's all constantly what this record needs and i think when a studio has been around for a long time it's easy to get really attached 
to how things are and how things have been and have fear of like the clients aren't going to come back because we changed something. Um, and I, you know, uh, I, I know when I was at, when I was at Capital is definitely a consideration and, and it's a valid concern when your business is built along, is built around that legacy and of, of those rooms and these, this equipment and stuff like that. There's a valid concern and it is a sacred thing and it is a thing that should be con- protected. But what we're really fortunate about, uh, what we're really fortunate to have is a studio where the legacy is what the records sound like. And the equipment has been constantly evolving since the sixties and nothing has been sacred in these rooms. And we're, we're blessed that we have clients that expect us to continue to do that. That makes a lot of sense. And, and you guys tend to work on a lot of different genres as well. Like there's like the indie rock stuff. There's like the heavier rock stuff. There's pop music. Like, so having a studio that's a little bit more modular or like customizable to fit a certain sound makes a lot of sense rather than just pigeon pigeonholing yourself into one specific sound or vibe or whatever you want to call it. Right. So, yeah, that, that's awesome. So that brings up a good point to you. Like, so in addition to the engineering, like you are the studio manager at barefoot. So, you know, I'm curious to, to learn, like, what does your role as a studio manager really entail? Cause it sounds like you're wearing multiple hats there. You're engineering, you're building walls, you're, you're kind of doing everything there. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, I came back to Barefoot in 2018 as a tenant. The idea being that, you know, I would be renting out Studio B for my work as an engineer and as a producer. Um, And that sort of, that conversation sort of turned into, well, Eric, what's happening with Studio A? Like, what are you doing with the whole building? And at that point, he had had married Grace Potter. They had a, you know, they had a home in Topanga. They were... Uh, he was working out of that studio, primarily coming into Barefoot when he needed to. And so the conversation kind of turned into like, well, let's open it back up. Let's, you know, if it's just sitting there, it's just costing him money. Let's let's open it back up. Let's make it into an opportunity for everybody and, and make it into a profitable thing. Um, and then, you know, and then we can grow the legacy of the studio. The studio can continue to evolve and continue to grow as it has because new projects and new blood and new ideas are coming through. And so basically, you know, primarily I'm at Barefoot as a producer, as an engineer working on my projects. Um, and I, that sort of grew into, okay, I'm the booking manager. Okay. I'm I'm staffing the place. Okay. And then, you know, after about a year of that, like I just basically just run the whole business. Um, but there was never really any plan of that or like it just <laughs> sort of, it just sort of happened out of necessity. And so I still kind of think of myself as this producer that's in this place. And, um, so when the clients are in working on this stuff, I pop my head in and say hi and stuff like that. And then I go back and work on my records and, um, and that kind of is kind of an organic, it's kind of an organic like relationship. And it's kind of, uh, you know, I feel like it makes me more connected to the projects that the clients are doing and more, uh, and more of a peer and more that's helping them get this space and do this thing as opposed to, a just a person running the books. Makes sense. Yeah. You have to. I think a big part of being a studio manager or just, you know, even an engineer, regardless of if it's a big studio or not, is like creating an atmosphere that people are comfortable in and, you know, that they, they feel like they're, they're welcome there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm there 
every day using that space and doing that. And so I I feel like it gives me a kind of a cool insight into what it is people need because then, and there's definitely, there's definitely been situations where it's like, uh, you know, I still work out of a, a lot on my, on projects and I'll book the room just like anyone else. Um, And so that gives me a really cool insight into what the client's expectations would be and what they would want us, what, what needs to change in those rooms and what needs to evolve. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And then, I know that, um, you know, a big part of being a studio manager as well is is getting clients to come into the studio. I don't know how it is at Barefoot. Like, do you guys find that it's just mainly word of mouth at this point? Or are you guys actively looking for new people and doing it that way? I mean, we we do a lot of promotion through social media. We do. Uh, it's a lot of word of mouth. You know, at the beginning of the beginning of opening it up, it was a lot of people reaching out about uh about, you know, they heard Eric's studio was available and wanting to get in there. And then as we started to bring in more and more projects and do and have more things come out that had been done there during this period, um, it's it's just built and it's been a lot of word of mouth and a lot of, you know, and then you build relationships with A&R people and you build relationships with, 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 uh, with different people that are trying to book rooms and there's a little bit of, you know, reaching out and be like, Hey, what are you working on? And just kind of keeping your finger on the pulse, which honestly, I've been a freelance engineer for most of my career. That's the same. It's the same. It's the same gig. It's the same thing that I did for myself. I'm just keeping these other rooms busy. And it's just, it's, it's a lot of word of mouth and a lot of relationships that you build over years and kind of, you once you're kind of tapped in a little bit, you kind of have a feel of like who's working on what, and um, and you're able to 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 help facilitate that. That makes sense. So for people who are maybe starting and uh, you know they're looking to start working with other bands and you know maybe take this on as a as a career for themselves, where do you recommend that they would start if they're looking to to find clients to potentially work with? I mean, for my for myself. Um, when I moved, I moved to Brooklyn for a few years and kind of had left behind my whole client base in LA. And I, you know, I had managers out there, um, and that that certainly helped. Um, but what we would do is I would just find local bands that I was into, and we would send an email saying like, "Hey, you know, Tim really likes what you're doing. I see you guys are playing tomorrow. He's going to come. He'd love to meet you." And, 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 or I would send emails like that myself. Um, but I just went to, I I think I went to a show every night for like three months and just local bands and stuff like that. Cause I was just trying to work with a completely different client base and was very much trying to work with like local cool bands in New York. And, um, but that, that kind of, uh, that kind of reach out was super valuable. And then after a while, people started to know who I was and I wasn't just some guy that had moved there. Um, you know, that sort of thing. And then the other thing that's been super valuable for me personally is, uh, you know, everyone needs to find a way to get in the room that's, you're not going to get into these big rooms or into these, onto these projects right off the bat as a producer. So you have to find a way to make yourself valuable. For me, that was knowing how to wire. Um, and so I started, you know, I first started getting calls for people that needed wiring help and, um, and that needed, that needed help in the studio as a tech. I mean, one of my first big gigs was going out on tour as a, as a keyboard tech. And then I ended up 
engineering for that artist and that sort of grew. Um, but just finding those other skills that are related are things that the people you want to work with need done, but aren't necessarily that higher barrier to entry thing that you're, you know, finding those easier, just finding those open doors and going through them, even if it's not exactly the door that you're trying to get through eventually, but just going through any and all doors that are open. And eventually that'll lead to where it is that you want to go. If you stay super focused on this idea of like, I'm a producer and only take on gigs where you're getting hired as a producer, you're never going to get there. Yeah. You can't let ego get to your head. Like you have to, you have to just build those relationships and take it, take it slow. Yeah. And, and I was very well served early on in my career that like a lot of the connections and the people that I know booking that I, that I, used to book barefoot uh were for, because i was ref- i wired a patch bay for them eight years ago or i i helped them build their home studio and that and someone referred me for that and that built a reputation and then when those people knew that i was booking barefoot it all kind of came together yeah absolutely i, I love that that process of doing it. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I was chatting with a, an actor the other day who he was telling me he, he was getting some, some bigger stage roles. And, you know, I asked him how he started and he's like, I was always the guy that would just be the guy holding like a, a, a cane in the background or whatever. Like I just wanted to get on that stage. I didn't have to have any lines. It was just like, just being there got me in the know with people, you know? And I, I think it sounds like exactly what you're doing there where, you know, you just have to, Make those small steps that, that get your name out there and put you in the right circles and, and uh, you know, eventually lead to, to much better opportunities. People that are working on stuff always need other people to help them somehow. And you find, you find that way to help and you make yourself valuable and then they start trusting you with bigger and bigger things. And that's, you know, and, it's, and you prove that you can do, I mean, and that's, I mean, that's, Eric's opened a ton of doors for me. And, um, you know, that, and that was because he trusted me with some simpler tasks that he needed done. And I delivered and I kept delivering and I kept delivering and he trusted me with bigger and bigger things. And then, you know, eventually he's like, here's the keys to the studio, you know, 10, 10 years later, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, <you> did it. <laughs> but if I had showed up 10 years ago and been like, Hey, I want to run your studio. There's no way in hell. And you also just can't jump for it. Like you can't, you can't do that one small gig and now think you're entitled to the next big thing. No, it's like, and and that's, that's definitely been a a conversation I've had with our interns and with our runners and stuff. It's like, you gotta be patient. Um, you know, because I mean, you come out of recording school and these recording schools market themselves as like, we're going to teach you how to do everything. And you're going to come out and do that. And it's like, it's, you know, it's, you haven't proved yourself yet. There's a lot of risk and there's a lot of trust. There's my reputations on the line because I'm having you do this other thing to help me. Um, you got to show me that you can do that thing before I trust you with bigger and bigger things. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think I agree with you about the schools. It's like they, a lot of them are always going to boast about, you know, their employment rates or whatever, because that's just how they stay alive. Right. But at the end of the day, it's like, you, most people aren't going to jump into a big gig and you have to, you have to start small, be willing to intern a little bit or, you know, just put your, put in the work, you know, and, and just be a good person, not, 
expect the world. Yeah. I mean, it'll, it'll happen, but it just it happens really slowly and uh, for, for a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. Well, right on, man. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. And right before we even started recording, you, you, your phone was going off the hook with some stuff. So, <laughs> so I'll let you get back to that. But uh, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to to be on the podcast today. And I really appreciate all the insight you gave here and uh, a lot of lot of cool tips in here. So I'm really excited for people to take take a listen to this. Yeah, thank you. So that was my interview with Tim O'Sullivan, and that was a really cool, very helpful conversation. I loved all of the insight that he had about using saturation in your mixes and breaking the so-called rules when it comes to audio production. But I also love how he he stressed the importance of understanding the rules first, you know, not just jumping right into this super experimental phase, because if you do that, you don't necessarily learn the foundational information that is important to then branch off and experiment from. But uh, I love everything he had to say there. And it was also really fun to hear the story about working with Slash and how Eric Valentine almost changed Slash's signature guitar tone with just a single guitar cable. I think that's a really cool story to to emphasize the importance of, you know, really understanding the gear and how every little detail makes a massive difference even up to a single guitar cable. So really fun to hear that conversation. And Tim, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I had a great time chatting with you and would love to have you back. Now, for you, the listener, if this is your first time listening to the Master Mix podcast, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way, every time I release a new episode, you'll be the first to know about it and you'll be up to date with all the new episodes. Also, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com and on the website, I've got a free download. It's called The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It is my guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes, and it's designed to help you get results quickly and quickly identify what to be paying attention to, what characteristics of each instrument you're supposed to find so that you can quickly identify what you need to boost and what you need to cut. So once again, check that out. It's at MasterYourMix.com. And that's it for today's episode, guys. Hope you enjoyed that. And we'll talk to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.